right. Now, this has nothing to do with this morning's sermon, but I want you to just think about what you've just experienced over the last five or ten minutes, uh, half an hour that we've been together. And then I want you to think about all that we've been through over the last three years. And then let me ask you, isn't it good to be together? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. All right, well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. And if you're wondering, when are we going to have a Christmas series? We are. Uh, This year, because of the way Christmas falls, uh, with Christmas actually falling on a a Sunday, December 25th is a Sunday, and then the following week being January 1st, we're going to do four weeks, kind of a a zoomed-out look at the incarnation, at the miracle of Christ's uh, first coming and also his second coming. I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you've been told this before, but Advent actually means coming. And, uh, and traditionally, it is, uh, it's the time of year when we think about the first and second comings together. And a lot of your Christmas carols are written that way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've ever found yourself in a weird verse for a Christmas uh, Carol, well, that's because, again, traditionally, it is appropriate and helpful to think about the first and second comings together. So we'll start to get into that a little bit next week. But this week, we are still in Acts. We're looking at Acts 4, 31 to 37. And I know you've heard me say this before. I mean it every time, but I mean it a little extra today. This would be a really good, helpful sermon for you to have your Bible open in front of you, and, uh, and, an, and an actual Bible. Not, uh, phone Bibles are great, and they've got tools and all that, uh, and I don't want to sound like the old man yelling at you to get off my lawn, but for some sermons, an open Bible really is uh, the only way to go, particularly uh, when you need to look forward and look back to make sure that you're seeing the whole picture. So just today, you know, humor, humor the old man. Uh, put your cell phone in your pocket, your purse, or your man bag, or whatever it is you've got going on today, and, uh, and make use of the Pew Bible. And if you've got all your favorite tools on your cell phone, we'll compromise, and you can have your cell phone open beside you as long as you've got an open Bible as well. And uh, if you didn't bring a, a Bible, you can find one in the chair in front of you, and the passage we're looking at this morning is on page 912. Now, as you look that up, if you are particularly astute uh, as a sermon hearer, then perhaps you're noticing that there's a bit of overlap between the passage that we're going to look at today and the passage that Pastor Rob walked us through last week, and that's entirely intentional, because what we're looking at today is actually the result of what Pastor Rob walked us through last week. So you remember uh, Pastor Rob's excellent sermon from last week? He talked about how the church prayed in response to persecution. He said, first of all, they prayed together. He said they prayed from the Word of God, and then he said they prayed for power, and boldness. And God heard that prayer, and God answered that prayer, and this is the result. This is how God met that need. This is how God responded to that request. So we're looking at those things. The early church had an incredible experience. Uh, They prayed. the, The room was shook. The Holy Spirit fell, and they were forever changed. An encounter with the Holy Spirit does not leave you unmarked. Right? Uh, an encounter with anything that powerful is going to leave a mark. You, if you get hit by an 18-wheel semi on your way home, and I hope you don't, um, but if you do, that will change your appearance uh, in a fundamental way. And uh, your friends and neighbors will likely remark upon the change in your appearance. And, and so, so it is here. Uh, what we're 
being told about here, what Luke is telling us about here, are the fundamental changes in terms of the nature and appearance of this congregation after the Spirit fell. The book of Acts, of course, is filled with a number of these little pictures, these little snapshots, moments in time. It's like a photo album in a sense. You know, your mom's got a picture of you in grade two and then a picture of you in grade seven and a picture of you in high school and all that kind of stuff. These are snapshots, moments in time. And that's what we have here. We have pictures of the church in the various stages of her growth and development. We had a picture of the early church in her innocence and infancy. You remember that back in Acts 2, 42 to 47? And then, of course, as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, some stuff happened after that. There were some experiences that changed and grew and stretched and refined this congregation. They had their first brush with persecution. They learned to pray. They experienced power. There's a lot of water under the bridge. And this church has changed now. And so here what we have, if Acts 2 was a, a picture of the church in kindergarten, then we might say what we have here now is a picture of the church at her grade 8 graduation. This is a, a full leap forward in terms of her growth, maturity, and power. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's a bit of a theological landmine at the headwaters of this passage. I'm sure you noticed it. Uh, Luke 31, or sorry, Acts 31, Luke tells us that these people were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's interesting. Uh, that's cause for remark because back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Luke had already told us that these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2 verse 4, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what's going on here? Did these people leak? Did the Holy Spirit come in Acts 2 and then leave in Acts 3 and then come back in Acts 4? What's going on? Well, we talked about this back when we were looking at Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. I cited the pillar commentary there reminding us someone who is already filled with or full of the Spirit can receive a further filling or enabling for a particular ministry. Close quote, that's helpful for us to see. Now, not only can that happen, but according to the Apostle Paul, that, that should happen. That should be part of our expectation. We should expect that, yes, we're going to have sort of slow but steady growth as we do the things that God has called us to do as people and as churches, but then we're going to have seasons of explosive growth have you, ever, have you ever had a kid in your house who, you know, yeah, sure, they added a half inch, 
every, every year. And then all of a sudden there was a summer where they grew like nine inches and started talking like a man and grew a beard that you could wipe up stuff with in your kitchen. Like it, there's explosive growth sometimes. And what the Apostle Paul seems to be cluing us into in, in his letters is the fact that this is okay. This is, this is not something to be concerned about. This is not a theological crisis. This is to be normative experience for the Christian. So he says in Ephesians 5.18, he's commanding his people, and do not get drunk with wine. Don't let that be what controls you, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In, in Greek, the verb there is in the present imperative, meaning it's an ongoing thing. Be ever being filled. So what we're supposed to see here is the normative expectation, the normative hope of the Christian. Spirit-filled people can and should expect to be subsequently filled by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. And so what we really have here is a picture of church 2.0. The subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit caused them to take a quantum leap forward as a church. And Luke is telling us about three, the three most obvious marks or characteristics of this church on the other side of that. So he's telling us what a filled and further filled Christian church looks like. First thing we see in this depiction is that they took a noticeable leap forward in terms of bold proclamation. Look again at verse 31, where this first mark is described. Luke says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the Greek word translated there as speak is not the normal Greek word for preach. It's actually the Greek word laleo, which just means to speak, to utter, even to babble or gossip. So it seems like what we're being told is it's not just that the apostles' sermons got better. They, it sounds like that was affected too, right? They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus with great power. But it says that this grace was on all of them. It sounds like the Holy Spirit fell on the entire gospel discourse of the church. Everybody was having the help of the Holy Spirit when they were gossiping the gospel with their friends, with their neighbors, with their loved ones. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever gone into a gospel encounter? Sometimes we don't, we, sometimes we can prepare for a gospel encounter. We're like, oh, I'm having the family over for Thanksgiving, and, and I know I'm going to get a question, and so I'm, I want to think through my answer sometimes. But sometimes, I was on a train once, and uh, I just happened to be reading the Bible, and the fella uh, two seats over was, uh, he was a Hindu fella, and he just asked me, he said, what are you, what are you reading? I'm reading the Bible. And he said, oh, I've got questions about that. It's like, I've got answers about that. Let's go. Let's go. Right? So, but sometimes you don't know. Uh, sometimes you, you can prepare. Sometimes you can't. But in that moment, when you ever find yourself having a gospel conversation, do you throw up a, a quick arrow prayer? You say, Holy Spirit, bring some verses to mind. Holy Spirit, you know me, right? Because I know the first line of every song ever written, but then nothing after that. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, some of my Bible memorization gets a little foggy too, where I start putting verses together and I can't remember the citation. And so I always fire up a prayer, Lord, help me have crystal clear uh, memory here so that I can just find everything I'm looking for. Ever do that? And then it's amazing. Have you ever felt the help of the Holy Spirit just descend on you like a blanket in that moment? 
and all this stuff. You're making arguments you'd never even heard before or practiced before. Verses are coming to you. You remember everything back from kindergarten. You're, say, you're quoting verses in the King James, right? Like it's all coming. It's the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we stop doing our homework. Uh, Peter, he didn't say to his people, pray for outpourings of the Holy Spirit so you can be great evangelists. Actually, no, he said to his people, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect. So he told his people to have the right attitude and to be prepared. Do the work. The Holy Spirit does not make the work unnecessary. The Holy Spirit is not a substitute for you doing your homework. But when the Holy Spirit falls on your homework, when the Holy Spirit aids your homework, when the Holy Spirit helps you recall your homework, when the Holy Spirit goes ahead of you and opens up cracks for all your prepared stuff to fall into, that's when great things happen. And that's what it sounds like was going on in this church. They took a giant leap forward in terms of their gospel discourse. And then the second thing we see in this picture is an exponential increase in family-like fellowship. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So to be clear, the text isn't saying that they became communists. They, still the things belonged to people. What it's saying is there was just this extraordinary openness about possessions. Their whole attitude towards possessions had changed, and there was a new feeling of unity among these people. They were one heart and soul, and they were beginning to think of themselves as a family. That is a sure sign of the Holy Spirit having fallen in a fresh way on our church. Last night, um, I read this little book, and don't be too impressed by that. As you can see, it's actually quite thin. But um, I've ordered a couple books, and I've got some on my shelf. Some are still coming uh, and Amazon, but I've made a little project for myself to understand political theology better, and uh, that's not really a primary interest of mine, but it's a topic of conversation in the church, so as a pastor, you're kind of supposed to be able to give some good guidance, but the early stages of this conversation have not been incredibly encouraging. I don't know if you've tracked it at all. Uh, partly, it, it's mostly coming out of the states, as every good and bad thing seems to do uh, in, in the evangelical church. One of the things you're hearing all of a sudden is that, you know, maybe to salvage nominal Christianity in America, as if that's something we should be trying to salvage, but anyway, uh, maybe there needs to be a reemphasis on identity groups and clans. Uh, interesting. Even one group suggested that maybe we should push back on the idea of interracial marriage. Fringe, fringe participant in the conversation. Anyway, it's very concerning because it seems to run counter to the gospel. So I've, I've ordered a bunch of these books, uh, different books I'm, I'm reading through. I gave this one a quick read last night. As I said, it's very short. Listen to what Mark Dever says. This is, a, I think, just a sermon that he preached uh, that they turned into a little booklet. I love this. He says, as a Filipino woman marries an Afro-American man, as Jews marry Gentiles, as Asians date non-Asians, as Americans and non-Americans wed and have children and adopt orphans from other countries, you see how all of this is appropriate in itself 
by God's ordinance. You don't need Jesus to make this happen, but as appropriate as it is by God's ordinance, it is even more appropriate once you have this new family being created by the Spirit of God. Isn't that interesting? By the Spirit of God. So one of the marks of the Holy Spirit falling on a church is new definitions of family, broader definitions of family. This is something we've been hitting on a few times in Acts because you can't miss it. That actually when the Spirit falls, people begin to instinctively redefine their primary loyalties. And that starts with Jesus, remember? We've cited this passage so many times. The headwaters of this movement is Jesus. When his mother and his brother come to him in Mark 3, and he's told, Jesus, your mother and your brother are here, he looks around at those who've gathered around him in faith and fellowship, and he says, here is my mother, my brother, and my sisters. One of the signs that the spirit of Jesus has fallen on the church is that this becomes your family. That previous markers like what tribe you are from, what ethnicity you are, those are still real. You don't stop being whatever you are, whatever you were, but those things drop down the priority list. And now family is those who love Jesus Christ, those who are united together in Jesus Christ. That becomes your primary identity marker, and that changes how you look at other people. My friends, you know that the Spirit of God has fallen when rich and poor sit together and serve one another in the church. You know that the Spirit of God has fallen when your identity in Christ is more important than your race, your ethnicity, your social standing, or your political affiliations. Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? I think that one of the surest signs that Christianity in North America is in general decline, general decline. There's no arguing that it's in general decline, and that is not to say that it is in universal decline and that there aren't always going to be pockets of spiritual health and progress and advance, amen. But I don't think anybody here would argue with me that the church in North America is in general decline. One of the signs of that is that all of a sudden the church is re-splintering along ethnic, racial, and political lines. Have you been watching that development? Listen, when two people with the same theology are dividing from one another over politics, the spirit has left the building. Do you understand? Because when the spirit falls, you see the exact opposite of that. You see people sitting together and loving one another who would never interact under any other circumstance. That's the point that Luke is making here. He is showing us that in the filled and subsequently filled Christian church, all of a sudden rich and poor people, which of course was the most significant social divide in the first century, all of a sudden all these different people starting to think of themselves as a family. Because in a family, all the money goes into the common pot, right? That's, that's what we're being told here. People were selling stuff and putting it in the common pot. As a dad, I understand that very well. Sometimes I look at my paycheck, then I look at my budget, and I notice how little of my income is actually spent meeting my needs. It goes to glasses for one child, tuition 
for another child, food for the family as a whole. Of course, that's what it means to be a dad. That's what it means to be a parent. That's what it means to be a family, and that's what you're seeing in the story. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The expression, they laid it at the apostles' feet, is a way of saying that ownership or the value was formally transferred into the common pot that was overseen by the apostles for the common good. Everybody's needs were everybody's concern, just like it is in a family. And of course, they were only able to meet these needs because of the remarkable generosity of the members. That's the third thing Luke is drawing to our attention. We see that in verses 34 to 35. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're told here that Barnabas sold a piece of property because he saw a need in the church that he had the ability to meet. Luke tells us that Barnabas was a Levite. That is to say he was from a particular tribe. But all of a sudden, that doesn't matter to Barnabas. He's not asking. Now, is the person in need a Levite? Oh, I see. They're a Benjamite. Sorry. Doesn't matter anymore. All that matters now is that Barnabas is a follower of Jesus. The person with the need is a follower of Jesus. So let's get this done. Barnabas is happy to release his property, a piece of his property, so as to meet that need. Now, to be clear, no one was forced to do that. It's held up as an exceptional example, not held up as a rule or a law. No one was being forced. No one was being coerced. In fact, in the follow-up story, you know that every time the Spirit falls, you get really good things happening, and then you get demonic deception imitation, right? That's why it's so complicated. But so here we've got the good stuff, and then in the next story, we get the really ugly imitation story of Ananias and Sapphira. We'll get to that after the Christmas break. But in that story, Peter says explicitly to Ananias about the property he sold. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So he's saying, listen, this, you, he's saying to Ananias, you understand that you don't have to do this. You're, you're doing this because you want to imitate, deceitfully imitate what Barnabas did so that you can get some of the sunshine that's, that's going Barnabas' way, right? So this is virtue signaling. This is hypocrisy. This is play acting. This is not pleasing to God. But he said, let's just be clear. You understand that at all times, this piece of property was your own to do with as you please. The church has no interest in making authoritarian claims upon the property of its members, Rather, what we're seeing here is that when the Spirit falls, people want to give. When the Spirit falls, the values change. When the Spirit falls, your connection to personal property changes. When the Spirit falls, your definition of family changes. Now, this passage doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know about giving in the early church. These are snapshots, not creeds or theological statements. All we're being told here is that when the Spirit falls, my goodness, you might not even need a good theology of giving. Uh, good to have one, but you, you, aren't, you aren't going to need rules 
about giving because when the Spirit falls, people want to give. They give to the poor in the church as naturally as I buy groceries for the hungry children in my home. When I buy groceries, I don't pat myself on the back. I don't consider that a great act of virtue. I, I, I don't think of that as, as charity or a great spiritual discipline. That's just me being a dad. I love those five kids more than I love myself. I'd feed them with my last $10 and die of starvation with a smile on my face. That's what it is to be a dad. That's not an act of charity. It's just parental instinct an instinct born of love. And that's what's happening in the story. Now, are, are there principles about giving? Absolutely, 100%. And, and we'll get into those. But that's not what this text is about. This text is telling us that principles don't matter when the Spirit falls because love always goes further than law. When the Spirit falls, love becomes the rule, the instinct, the principle, and the guide Thanks be to God. All right, that's, that's the essence of this picture. We've got three areas that Luke highlights for us as having been particularly affected by this subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit. So what's our application? What's our take-home from that? You know, we, we look at this picture and we're like, all right. What's, what's the implied imperative? And to get at that, that's why I wanted you to have your Bible open in front of you, because my great concern when we read passages like that, if we, if we were to have read verses 32 to 37 without having read verse 31, that is to say, if we were to consider this passage without remembering how it fits into the story relative to the passage Pastor Rob preached on last week, I think we would make an awful mess. I think if we'd read verses 32 to 37 on their own without reading verse 31 again, we would be tempted to think that if we preach powerfully in this place, if we commit to community in this place, if we demonstrate generosity in this place, then the Spirit would fall. But here's the thing. In addition to that being an actual heresy, it is 100% not what is being said in this text. In this story, the Spirit falls first. And the fruit that we are talking about is the result of that further filling. So to get the application right, we actually have to zoom out and consider the story with a wider lens. We have to ask the logically and theologically and sequentially prior question that this narrative suggests. And I think that question is, what positions a church to receive further outpourings of the Spirit. Is that where your heart went? When you hear that, the Spirit fell on this church, and all of a sudden they just burst into bloom. I, I, think we're, I think this picture is here to stir up aspiration in us. I want to look like that. That's what's going on in the story. That's the critical aspect in the story. The Spirit fell, and then all this beauty and goodness and power came. Amen? They didn't do these things and make the Spirit fall. The Spirit fell. And this is what was born in them. It's so important that we see that. Because you can't drum this stuff up, right? You know, I can't just yell at you and say, why can't you share the gospel better? Nobody ever gets saved on the train with you, right? By the way, my, my guy didn't get saved either. You can't just shout that at people. You can't drum up fellowship by just announcing it. Now, we do. We'll say, oh, we're going to have, um, 
What do we do that? What's that thing called when we guess who's coming to dinner? Is that what that's called? Mystery potluck or something? I don't know. Anyway, we do that stuff, but, but you know, you, it's not like you can just schedule or program deep bonds of fellowship. And generosity, absolutely. We'll share the principles. We'll tell you, what, you know, what's up. We'll give you some examples. But you, you cannot twist people's arms into this kind of giving. You can't twist people's arm into beginning to instinctively assume the needs of the body of Christ as their own. That kind of thing comes from the Spirit of God. So how do we get, how do we get more of that? That's what I'm asking. How do we position ourselves for more of the Holy Spirit? Now, for the theologically cautious among us, and I, you know, I understand that, let me just assure you that it is okay for us to be talking like this. It is, it is okay for us to be wanting this. In fact, it's more than okay. We're supposed to. The Apostle Paul told his people, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 14.1. So there is solid warrant for us having this conversation. Now, I want to be clear. I want to be absolutely clear. I want you to be absolutely clear. I'm not saying, I hope you understand. I understand, I hope you understand that we cannot make God pour out the Spirit. God's not a Pepsi machine. Not like if we put the right amount of change in and hammer the right button, then we'll get the outcome we want. No, no one is saying that. But maybe... Maybe this story is suggesting a faithful path of pursuit for the spirit-hungry church to be walking on. So, again, with your Bibles open, let's just see if we can zoom out and kind of backwards engineer how this church in Acts 4 positioned itself to receive a further filling of the Spirit. What was, what was unique about who they were, what they were doing when all this went down? Well, I think the first thing we'd want to remark upon is their overall health as a congregation. Just flip back with your open Bible. Flip back maybe two pages. I don't know, maybe one page. Acts 2, 42 to 47. We read this about a month ago. We were preaching on this passage. I'm not going to read it to you again. I'm just going to highlight some of the health markers we saw in this passage. They were hungry for the Word of God, verse 42. They were beginning to think of themselves as family. That's verse 42 again. The Holy Spirit was alive and active among them, verse 43, they were regular in their spiritual devotion, verse 42 and 46. They were active in reaching out and folding in new people, verse 47. That sounds for all the world like a healthy church. That sounds exactly like the kind of church God would be happy to bless and cause to grow. There's an old saying, it is hard for God to bless a sinful people. Right? You understand that? You got a bucket. Why would God pour more bucket or more water into a bucket with a giant hole in it? It's hard for God to bless a sinful people. And so health really matters. Health is one of the ways we can position ourselves to receive more from God. That's kind of the theme of the entire Old Testament, right? They, they could never get the hole plugged in their bucket. And when you flip it on its, its head, it's kind of the theme of this whole story we've been reading about the last several weeks. They were a healthy church. And as the story goes, we discover as well that they were a faithful church. Pastor Matt did a fabulous job of bringing this point out in his sermon on Acts 3. I don't know if you remember that. Here's a quote from his sermon. He said, it's interesting that the fireworks of Pentecost were followed by the ordinary routine of daily prayer. 
The incredible event of Pentecost was followed by the formative work of prayer. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that good? The early church understood that fireworks and faithfulness are intimately connected. In fact, the one leads to the other and then usually back again. That's where it all started, wasn't it? See, we're at the end. This is why it's helpful to have our Bibles open. We're at the end of a story. This is a real long story. I don't know if, if you've noticed that. It's one continuous narrative that we're coming to the end of here that starts back in Acts 3, verse 1. So this, you remember the details of the story? We've covered them in sort of one episode at a time in this story. First episode is uh, Peter and John encounter this lame fellow who was outside the temple. They heal him. That creates a stir because the brother had been lying there for years. It sets the city of Jerusalem basically on fire. When the crowd gathers, Peter preaches a sermon uh, all about Jesus. They get arrested. They get thrown in jail. Then they're before the Sanhedrin, and they got another chance. Peter preaches the gospel again. Then the gospel is, or the preaching about Jesus is officially banned and outlawed. So when they're released, the church calls a prayer meeting, and then the Spirit fell. So it all goes back to Acts 3, verse 1. That's the start of this story. Now, do you remember what they were doing in Acts 3, verse 1? It says this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They were on their way to prayer meeting. The fireworks trace back to the faithfulness. The revolution grew out of the routine. Understand that? Listen, you can't just do a rain dance and drum up more of the Spirit of God. That's paganism. The Spirit blows where he will. But as this story reminds us, he tends to blow in the direction of faithfulness. Third thing we see here as we zoom out, consider the story as a whole, is their boldness. When the crowd gathered to find out what had happened to the lame brother, Peter spoke the truth. He pulled no punches. He said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. That's not a very seeker-sensitive sermon, is it? Actually, I'm thinking about that for Christmas morning. <laughs> Why not? Only Christians are going to be here, right? So hit them hard. Can you imagine saying that to a group of people? Peter pulled no punches. Telling the truth is what got Peter and John arrested. They were not arrested for being jerks. They were not arrested for their political views. They were not arrested for being bad citizens. They were arrested for telling people the truth about Jesus. They were arrested for holy boldness. And I find that interesting because actually in this story, boldness is both a cause and a result, meaning it does seem as if their boldness in chapter 3 is part of what was pleasing to the Lord about this church, such that he blesses them further in chapter 4 with further boldness. So one gets the impression that boldness matters. Boldness matters. It is what God wants and it is what God gives. And then the fourth thing we see in this narrative is, of course, the church at prayer. That was the message that Pastor Rob preached last Sunday. How did the church in Acts 4 respond to persecution? Did they protest? Did they get angry? Did they go on a rampage? No. They committed themselves to corporate prayer. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You seeing that, brothers and sisters? 
This story is not saying be generous, build community, preach powerfully, and then the Holy Spirit will fall. Rather, it is saying pursue health, be faithful, speak boldly, pray fervently, and should the Spirit fall, expect to see ever more powerful preaching, boundary-breaking community, and jaw-dropping generosity. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now in need of further grace, and we come desperate for subsequent filling. Lord God, we want the church that only you can give. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Renew our strength, empower our proclamation, deepen our fellowship, and alter our perspective. Make us new, build us up, and send us out. Oh God, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.